Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Wojciech Wiewerowski. He is the European Data Protection Supervisor and has been in this role for the past two months or so. Uh, there's lots to talk about, uh, Wojciech. You, of course, you're the brand new boss of this uh, organization, but you've been in it uh, working as a deputy since 2014. How have you seen the evolution of this office in the time you've been working here? Uh, thank you for the possibility to meet uh, with with uh, uh, the people through your uh, podcast. Uh, well, I've been in the office of the European Data Protection Supervisor already from 2014, playing the role of the Deputy European Data Protection Supervisor at Giovanni's Butelli's time. So I had an opportunity to see the development of the uh, office already for five years, and that I may say that this is still an evolution, starting from just two persons that were in the office in 2004 when <laughs> the office was created. Right. That was uh, Peter Hastings and his deputy, Joaquin from Spain, uh, who uh, they were both elected for this post and they started to organize the office. Through the times so when I joined here, when we were about 50-something people uh, dealing with uh, data protection in the EU institutions, uh, to the times today where we are not only the supervisors of the EU institutions, not only the advisors in the leg legislative process, but we also provide the secretariat for the European Data Protection Board. And right. moreover, uh, last years we've seen the uh, additional uh, duties that were given to the European Data Protection Supervisor, especially in the field of uh, law enforcement uh, and law enforcement agencies. So, uh, in 2017, we took the whole control, whole supervision on over the data protection in Europol, so in the policing agency. And uh, last year, in December, we did the same with Eurojust. And now we also take uh, uh, take the supervision over European Prosecutor's uh, Office. Uh, right. That will be uh, effective from November 2020 when the office will be created. Right. If I understand correctly, you're not formally in charge maybe of the supervising or monitoring the implementation of the General Directive on uh, Regulation on Data Privacy, but you are obviously keenly associated with it. It's now been, as you know, much better than I do uh, in operation since May 2018, if I'm not uh, mistaken. How, how satisfied are you with the progress of, of implementation and compliance by, by people who are subject to the GDPR? Yes, you're fully right. European Data Protection Supervisor is the supervisor of the EU institutions, bodies and agencies, while at the same time there are data protection authorities in each and every country of the European Union. So we have the national jurisdictions and a little bit virtual jurisdiction, which is EDPS, dealing with the institutions and agencies, right. plus being the advisor to the European Parliament and the European Commission and European Council, while at the same time the uh, national data protection authorities uh, like uh, CNIL in France, like German Federal Data Protection Supervisor, or as it was with IC uh, ICO in UK, are advisors in the legislative process on the national level. So we are taking part in implementation of the GDPR, even if uh, the EU institutions, bodies and agencies have their own regulation mm -hmm. about data protection, which is, let's say, GDPR for EU institutions. So the principles are the same, the rules are the same, the procedures may differ a little bit. And of course, providing the Secretariat for the European Data Protection Board, we are deeply involved in facilitating the whole uh, discussion about harmonization of the approach to general data protection regulation, because we have uh, the same merit law, 
which does not need implementation in the member states. Uh, but we have interpretation, which is still done by 27 national data protection uh, offices. And if we count also the land authorities in Germany, that would be even more. So to have the harmonized approach and to understand the things in GDPR the same way is the condition sine qua non to really have a kind of digital single market in Europe. Right. Well, you know, by almost by definition, I suppose the the proponents of GDPR are, are very uh, satisfied, and very happy their success in getting it on the statute books in the first place, and also with the, with its progress in implementation the past year, year and a half or so. But you'll also be aware that there are some critics out there who say that it is unduly onerous, that it uh, disproportionately affects negatively uh, smaller organisations who are less equipped to comply with a quite a few pages of, uh, of rules and regulation. How do you respond to that? Well, um, I think there is nobody in the world who may say that is 100% happy of each and every rule which is in the uh, law like General Data Protection Regulation. The whole story about that and also the whole beauty of this legal act uh, is that it has been agreed by all political fractions from the very left to very right and uh, from the people who are representing purely the business uh, to the people who are representing uh, the data subjects through the people who are representing the EU institutions or national institutions. So there was a kind of compromise that was done by uh, all these uh, parties and all of them uh, de devoted a lot of uh, effort to try to implement it in the right way. Am I happy of what we achieved? Well, I think that the main goals have been achieved and uh, uh, despite the fact that there is still a lot of things to, to uh, deal with, uh, the implementation process is not 100% uh, uh, finished and also the enforcement has just started, meaning that uh, uh, if we deal on only with the cases that happened after 25th of May 2018 when the, uh, this new data protection regime started to be fully operable, then it means that uh, the decisions uh, in the most important, most complicated cases are just a the corner and the judicial review is still ahead so we still have a, a while to uh, understand the real impact and the real uh, operation of this uh, uh, of this legal act Would, does it mean more uh, requirements uh, towards the players on the market or to, towards the public administration. If we think about the market and especially the entities that are uh, that are doing the commercial activities in the market. I'm one of those who say that the main difference is that now they have to do the things that they were expected to do the last 20 years. So uh, talking about the merit, talking about the principles, talking about the way they are observed, there's not much difference uh, uh, from what was in the directive. What really changed is the change from the very administratively organized way of doing the things and the notification processes and the follow-ups of that uh, in the past to the approach which is more driven by accountability. So the possibility to present yourself what is your business model and how you observe the principles. Throughout the whole discussion about GDPR, we had a constant call, do not overregulate. Do right. not try to make the rule for everything, because we know our business better than the uh, legislators can, and then the data protection authorities can. So do not overregulate, leave us the possibility to show ourselves uh, how we observe the principles. That was what was done in GDPR. And now, when the implementation came, we hear the constant call, where are the templates? Right. Where are the checklists? And the answer is, there will be no templates. 
and no checklists. But there is a kind of requirement or rather expectation that uh, the market can prepare some of the solutions also itself by codes of conduct, by the preparation to the possible certification schemes. But the certification schemes is still something that have to come. Still, we don't have it implemented. The codes of conduct, they just reached uh, uh, the National Data Protection Authorities and the EDPB, European Data Protection Board, as the all-European body. So we are still in the process. I may say it goes in the right direction, not always as fast as we would expect. On the other hand, I would not be surprised that all the players in this process try to uh, check all the possible uh, procedures mm. and also all the possible safeguards that exist. And the data protection authorities have to be ready for the judicial review. Right. Stepping back briefly, uh, Wojciech, um, the European Union often likes to talk about and claim with some justification its success in, in effect, exporting rules and regulation beyond the boundaries of the European Union. And one that, uh, the example, as you know, always quoted is the, the REACH Directive on uh, regulation on, on chemical testing and so on. I don't think that's, this seems to be the case of GDPR. You said recently, and I quote, you could try to argue that there is a global race to the top for privacy protections, but there is no doubt there is also a global race to the bottom for pervasive surveillance technology. Let's take those in two parts. What is this race to the top for privacy protection? Other jurisdictions are, want to have their own version of GDPR? Uh, maybe not own version of GDPR. This is not also what we expect, uh, uh, but uh, what we would expect from the development. But uh, they uh, try to regulate this area, which sometimes was out of the scope of the regulation so far. So when we were starting uh, the preparation to the GDPR in 2010, there were probably 60, 70, peop 70 countries in the world with the data protection law. Now we, ha well, we have 142 with different kinds of the data protection law that is uh, comprehensive and that is uh, going uh, horizontally throughout the, the, the whole uh, legal system. We have also the discussion about the solutions which are either sectoral or, uh, or regional or local uh, even in the United States and the whole discussion about the federal law in the United States. So when I'm saying about the race to the top, that uh, rather means the number of the regulations that we have uh, and uh, also trying to uh, uh, trying to achieve the kind of benchmark uh, which has been set by the EU or address this benchmark, meaning uh, not necessarily copying the things, the, the, the solutions which are, uh, were proposed by Europe, but at least to go in the dialogue with them. So if the, if the regulators and the legislators in the other countries don't follow the European example, they, have, they try to explain why. Why do you think that it's not something that they can go with uh, in their c culture, in their political, all the all the uh, or the commercial uh, situation and the, uh, political or legal culture? So, when you talk about the global race at the bottom for pervasive surveillance technology now, as opposed to privacy protections, protection, are you talking about things like facial recognition and uh, and that kind of thing? That's one of the technologies that might be uh, the good exemplification of the trend. But I would go a little bit farther. We have to remember that at the same time when India is preparing the data protection law that probably will be just two articles shorter than GDPR, right. at the same time they, they roll out the one of the most uh, 
uh, intrusive system of the uh, surveillance mm. and identification of the people, which is based on ADAHAR, which is based on the register which also contains the biometric data, and which uh, uh, idea is uh, to have the possibility to address each and every citizen of India, huge state, yes, yes. with very, very different people, uh, exchanging one person from the other, which was not that easy so far. And at the same time, we have, of course, uh, Chinese uh, social credit system that has been introduced, or rather is introduced in the pilot projects uh, throughout China, right. which tries even to assess the behavior of the person, assess its... Uh, the, the person's uh, usefulness for the society, I would say, uh, in the kind of scoring like it was in the uh, banking on insurance systems uh, uh, so far in the world, now in the, in the much uh, more broad uh, social base. So we have this two, th that's of course a simplification, that we have on one hand raise, uh, uh, the, the race to, to, to get uh, the better protection, on the other hand, uh, to uh, surveil the people in the more practical way. Right. Well, I'm imagining that uh, technologies like facial recognition and similar ones will be addressed in the uh, in the forthcoming uh, European Commission communication on artificial intelligence due to come out later in the month this month in February. What what are your expectations? I'm not asking you to reveal any early any confidences of the content, but what do you expect this uh, this communication of, on artificial intelligence to to provide? Uh, first of all, we shouldn't expect that there will be the proposals of the regulation which will be uh, given by the Commission. I don't believe that this is the, this moment in time. We rather expect the white book, we rather expect the strategy for uh, dealing with the problems of artificial intelligence and the other problems around or other topics around because in my opinion facial recognition is not the part of the discussion about artificial intelligence. Right. That's another topic which has a big overlap with the uh, artificial intelligence problems but a lot of uh, facial recognition systems that exist at the moment in the world are not artificially intelligent in any sense. Right. If you go to the airport in Brussels uh, and you go through the facial recognition system in order to get to passport control, yeah. there is no artificial intelligence in it. It's really? just a pure combination of the template that is in the database with the uh, uh, picture of the person that can be taken by the camera. So this is really quite an easy process, of course, easy in comparison with the real algorithmic uh, systems that uh, will try to exist. But you are right that uh, uh, the uh, facial recognition uh, which is equipped with artificial intelligence tools uh, is definitely the step number one to the much more intrusive techniques uh, of uh, finding the people, recognizing the people, right. and assessing the people uh, and, uh, and associating the person in the street, uh, for example, or in some uh, other uh, in, s in some building uh, with the resources, information resources that we have about her or him. So especially when we go to the facial recognition in the public areas, uh, that might be a game changer, because now we still feel quite uh, anonymous when we are in the streets, even if we know that there are the cameras around, but uh, we do not expect that everybody in the street is recognized automatically and everybody is followed, everybody is checked, which actually might be the follow-up uh, of the facial recognition in the public areas. Uh, I'm giving the example that was told to me by several professors who are coming back from China recently, who say that why five, six years ago, that was a very interesting place, a very challenging place to have the debate on these scientific uh, topics. Now it's not the true anymore. And most probably that's because of the cameras which are around and the mm -hmm. chilling effect of the fact 
that the people do not know if they are uh, okay. recognized, they do not know if they are associated with the resources which are somewhere in the university or somewhere in the police station right. or somewhere in the public administration. And the mere fact that, the, uh, that there is possibility to be facially recognized uh, uh, in the automatic way might have the incredible chilling effect. I don't know if I want to live in the society <laughs> like that, uh, but probably this is the thing that we have to uh, think about. So I would love uh, to have the real studies on the real impact it may have, uh, not only to the uh, primary uh, aspects that we can think about, but also for the future of the society as such. Okay, well, in, in this final part of the conversation, we're, check, we're, we're recording this on the first, in effect, working day of, of phase two Brexit discussions. And, of course, the, the focus so far is on level playing field, on, on fisheries, uh, maybe financial services. But, obviously, I want to talk to you about um, data, data sh and data sharing, uh, especially in the context of uh, European security. There seems to be a broad consensus, despite uh, everything else, th that there should be as much cooperation in the security sector as possible between the UK and U27 going forward. Uh, but obviously there are huge data uh, privacy uh, aspects to that as well. And the phrase being bandied around all the time, of course, is, is, is data privacy adequacy, if I understand correctly. So what is, what is your view on the, on the likelihood of, of an early agreement uh, on data privacy uh, and data transfers within the UK and the EU in the Brexit talks? Well, first of all, in the discussions, uh, first, that's the first time when the discussion about the adequacy is not only about the market and the, let's say, GDPR adequacy, but also about the adequacy in the former second pillar, so where there is a directive on the law enforcement authorities and the way they are collecting the data. So we right. will have uh, two uh, adequacy decisions or two di discussions uh, to have uh, adequacy decisions, one uh, under GDPR, the other under police directive. And inter interrupt you, I understand correctly, it's the EU who decides unilaterally that the adequacy is, is achieved or not, is that correct? Mm, yes, you're right. Uh, you are right, but uh, it has been shown by Japan during <coughs> their um, negotiations of, uh, of adequacy, right. that it's actually the bilateral process. Okay. Because uh, Japan was the first country who said to Europe, yes, okay, we are applying for adequacy in Europe, but you are applying for adequacy in Japan. <laughs> so this is a deal that we do. So th then it means that this is a kind of negotiations, but of course, negotiations not in trade way of uh, thinking about it, especially that... Uh, the principles that are in use in the UK are exactly the same at the moment as the ones that we have in Europe. So right. we cannot say that these uh, systems are far from each other and they have right. to be uh, aligned. That's rather the question how, uh, continu how the continuous cooperation may lead to the quite harmonious approach to the development of the uh, data protection law. W what does it mean in practice? Well, now we have few months uh, to have the negotiations like that. But of course, bearing in mind uh, that there is also the review of the other existing adequacy decisions. Right. So there are at the moment uh, already 12 decisions like that, and 11 of them with are... With other countries, you mean? With the other countries, right. yes. Starting from Uruguay, but finishing with Guernsey and Isle of Man. So actually, <laughs> if there was a hard Brexit, fortunately there is no, but <laughs> if there was hard Brexit, then it would mean that UK one night would become the third country, while Guernsey and Isle of Man are still <laughs> adequate, so they would still <laughs> be able to transfer the data and get the data transferred. But coming back to the, to the reality, of course uh, uh, both EU and UK are interested to start these uh, negotiations uh, as soon as possible. 
it's hard for me to say how complicated are they. We still don't know several things about the future of data protection law in the UK. For example, we don't know what will be the uh, system of the onward transfers from the UK to the, to the other countries. So would it be, uh, would there be any system of adequacy for the UK market or the data which once appeared in the UK start to be transferred wherever uh, to the world uh, which is possible. So still there are the things to, to know uh, in order to assess where is the starting point. But uh, I guess... Uh, and how confident are you there will be a reasonably uh, quick agreement? I cannot say. I know that this is a complicated situation. But at the same time, if we can say that there is any system in the world which is similar to the European one, well, at the moment it's definitely the UK one, because right. just a few days ago it was a part of the UK system, so, right. sorry, U U EU system. system yeah. So uh, it's definitely the, the most similar that we can imagine. The question is, uh, would it be similar, or the idea of the British government is to make it different from the one that we, uh, exists in Europe? That's, that's the main question to be answered. And according to that, the political decisions will be taken, and the assessment by the Commission and uh, assessment and uh, uh, assessment of that, uh, an opinion to that, uh, by the European Data Protection Board will follow. So uh, thank you. We have to leave it there, Wojciech Wierowski. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Uh,